0: Let's pray. I know, Holy Spirit, that you have inspired the biblical writers to show us that the normal pattern of prayer is to pray in the name of Jesus to the Father by the Spirit. But you will, I pray, look with favor now upon this brief moment in which I address you personally with deep gratitude for what you've done in my life and what you have done in this conference and what you're about to do and have been doing. I know that you want us to magnify Jesus. I know that you're called the shy member of the Trinity, but I just want to give in the presence of these friends, tribute to you. You are God and you are holy and you are utterly needed at every moment. So I ask for your help now for them and me, that you would be appropriately understood, appropriately honored, and that everything you were sent to do would happen. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you know or could guess why I am completely confident at this moment that the Holy Spirit is mightily at work in this room. Or more specifically, I wonder if you know and can identify the experience, and I do mean experience of the Holy Spirit in your life right now, mightily at work, unmistakably at work, identifiably at work, and you could name it, you could point to it in your life right now, in this moment. My reason for that confidence is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, and I'll just say in passing that I'm going to refer to dozens of ta- passages of Scripture in this message, and I won't give you time to look any of them up. That's dangerous. I know that. Um, but I'm accountable because this will be online, Cross website, Desiring God website, who knows where else. And every verse will be quoted. And, and I would recommend, though, that if, if you take notes, that you, you jot down bullet insights and that you jot down the texts, and then you can check them out later. But this is that kind of message. And then if you have questions, I'll be, I'll be on deck here in an hour or so, and you can ask away. So my reason for that confidence is found in 1 Corinthians 12.3 that goes like this. No one, speaking in the Spirit of God, ever says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. So, the reason I'm confident that the Holy Spirit is powerfully, massively, supernaturally at, room, at, at work in this room is that hundreds of you say that and mean it, which is amazing. I believe in the saving and the supreme authority and the unsurpassed beauty of the lordship of Jesus Christ. So do many of you, and we couldn't, couldn't believe it, couldn't see it, couldn't say it with any authenticity without the work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says you can't do it. You can't say Jesus is Lord. Udes dunatai. No one is able to say Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. And you do. You're a walking miracle. You should be able to point to that with amazement. I say Jesus is Lord. And, and tears will come to your eyes that the Holy Spirit has chosen you. He's come to you, He's opened your eyes. This is the divine diagnosis of the human heart and the divine prescription, the only remedy for the diagnosis of your condition. Every human heart. I get that from the word nobody. Nobody can say this. Nobody. So every human heart, everywhere in the world, Japan, Yemen, everywhere in the world is in such a rebellious spiritual condition, it cannot submit to, see, say with any authenticity, Jesus is Lord. Cannot be done. Because that's what the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. And the only remedy for that rebellion is the triumphant work of the Holy Spirit to turn rebellion into submission to the Lordship of Christ. Paul says this numerous ways, so does Jesus, Let's, let me give you a few others. Romans 8:7. the mind of the flesh, you got the mind of the Spirit, the mind of the flesh, the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's the same cannot as in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's how dead and rebellious you were before the Holy Spirit showed up. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 the natural person that's just who we are by our first birth right the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of god for they are folly to him and he is not able see so got three times now cannot 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 he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned jesus john chapter 6 verse 44 puts it like this no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he does that by the Holy Spirit. Nobody can come to me. Nobody goes to Jesus for salvation, in repentance, in submission, calling him Lord, unless the Father commissions the Spirit triumphantly to break into your life. Or Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answers him, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my Father who is in heaven, Matthew 16, 17. So no one anywhere in the world, in any people group in the world, is anything other than natural condition, mind of the flesh, flesh and blood, and therefore cannot say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. And hundreds of you in this room maybe. Thousands say it and mean it. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is at work in this room right now with the same power that brought universes into existence. Paul says that in Second Corinthians 4, 6. Now you know as well as I do that computers can be programmed to say Jesus is Lord. That would not have surprised Jesus and it doesn't contradict anything that Paul said because both Jesus and Paul knew that already that mere words do not require a miracle. Jesus' is Lord is not mere words. We know that because Kevin, read the text this morning that goes like this, Matthew 7, 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. You can do that without the Holy Spirit. Did we not prophesy in your name? You can do that without the Holy Spirit. Cast out demons in your name. Do many mighty works in your name, and I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. When Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, he means no one can say it from the heart and mean it. And we know that because of what he said in Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved." And Jesus warned against fake affirmations in Matthew 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So when I said I am confident that the Holy Spirit is massively at work in this room. I said it because I'm confident that the vast majority of you who say Jesus is Lord, mean it. That's why you're here. Now, I ask that other specific question, more specific, more important. Do you know, do you know? that the Holy Spirit is at work right now in your life that miraculously, that supernaturally? Can you identify that experience? Do you experience the work of the Holy Spirit in your life right now, this very moment? And I just gave you a, a constellation of texts by which you would be able to discern that texts about who you were before that happened and who you are now that that happened and how you got there from that to this. Those texts all explain how you came into being as a submissive servant of the lordship of Jesus in your life. It explains the miracle. And my guess is there are some of you in this room who've never heard that constellation of texts and yourself described that way. And your own experience of coming into light and seeing Christ as Lord and yielding to him explained in that way. And it is a wonderful thing. I'm so thankful for this, that it is possible to experience authentically miraculous works of God without understanding what's going on. Because you've been badly taught. (laughs) Millions of Christians have been badly taught about what happened to them at conversion. They are really saved. Because God is so merciful to let reality count when our mouths put names on what's happened to us that are all wacko. So don't don't worry too much if you're listening and, and have a sense of, I've never, I've never even thought that I couldn't say Jesus is Lord, except by the supernatural, mighty, decisive work of the Holy Spirit in my life, I have just did it. One night, that's okay, now you know. <laughs> and what a difference it makes to know. I mean, this is a thick book for a reason. Changes your life to know who you are. Changes your life to know who He is. Changes your life to know how you got here. Changes your life to know where you're going and to get it right. It really does. It's a glorious thing to be in this book and know reality about yourself and not be confused about how you came into being question is, do you believe it? Does it make your heart sore? Let me ask you some questions now. Does it make your heart sore that your acclamation, we've done it several times in song, that your acclamation of the Lordship of Christ over your life is decisively the work of the Spirit and not your own? Does that make you happy? yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Do you wake up in the morning amazed and happy that you call him Lord, and it wasn't you who brought that about? Of course, if you think you brought it about, you won't wake up that way. Which is a sad way to wake up. Are you amazed and glad that it is the Holy Spirit who caused your yieldedness to the Lordship and you are performing it? He's causing it. You're performing it. That makes you glad. Happy to have him as my cause. I do it. He causes it. Happy, happy. That is the way it ought to be. And I'm so glad that he's at work like that in my life. Are you happy that he created it in you and that you are acting it out? Are you glad that he's the fire and your affection for him is the heat and your witness is the light? He's the fire. Is that okay? Is that good? Is that wonderful? I am so glad there's a supernatural flame in my life. And that the warmth of my affections for him and my yieldedness to him is owing to a flame. And the opening of my mouth is owing to a flame. Light is coming out because there's no fire without light. I hope you are. And if it's new to you, I hope by the end of this conference, you will be glad in the sovereignty of the work of the Holy Spirit spirit. It has everything to do with world evangelization as you can easily see. It means there would be no goers, no missionaries because there would be no Christians. And there would be no converts anywhere if anybody went. So if there are no goers and there are no converts, Nobody's yielding to the lordship of Jesus from the lordship of Satan. And we stay right where we are, without the Holy Spirit. There would be no world evangelization, no world missions, if it weren't for the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And when you think about it, that's very humbling and very empowering. Humbling because we know now we didn't save ourselves. We we didn't come under the Lordship of Jesus by our own initiative. It was by the Holy Spirit, and we want him to get the, the credit. And so we're humbled, and he's magnified. We're powerless, and he is powerful. Now this is empowering for for ministry as well because what it means is that in this room as you contemplate your future and your own present weaknesses and deficiencies, the, 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 the message, this message should sound like, wait a minute, if he's right, if Piper's right, then the decisive, effective power through me is not me, it's the Holy Spirit, and therefore the most gifted evangelists and the least gifted are on the same level, and the Holy Spirit decides whether either of them is fruitful or not, because nobody says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What an empowerment, what a freedom, it's just good to be humbled flat on your face and get up knowing His work. That's so good, so freeing. Jesus is Lord, and He's been moving people to say it, believe it, see it, savor it for 2,000 years. Now, the question is, do we know who we're talking about here? Is that just a religious term? Is Holy Spirit just a religious term for you? Do we know what His mission is? Could you state it in a sentence? I hope you'll be able to in a few minutes. What's the mission of the Holy Spirit in the world? Do we know how to receive Him? Or as a Christian, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, how to have the fullness of his activity in our lives. Those are the questions we turn to now. None of the teachings of the Bible about the Holy Spirit have their proper effect on us unless we realize that we're talking about a person and not a force not a mere activity of another person, not a principle. We're talking about a a person and particularly a divine person, the second person of the one God, the Trinitarian God. Now, I'll direct you to some passages where I think you could at least show an unbeliever or a baby believer why you believe that. The key passages are in John 14 to 16, 14, 15, 16. I'll just point to two things, and what I'm trying to establish is that the Bible treats the Spirit as a person in his own right. So listen to Jesus in John 14, 16. He calls him, he calls the Holy Spirit, I will give you another counselor. I will pray the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So when Jesus calls the Spirit a counselor or a comforter, he treats him as a a person. And when he calls him another counselor, he means like me, I'm a person. He's a person. I counsel you now. He will come and counsel you later. He's a counselor like Jesus. He's a person. That's the first thing. Second, John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit is described not merely as the voice of God's teaching, but as a teacher in his own right. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. Or the word witness. John 15, 26. When the counselor comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me. So, unless we think, lest we think, that the Spirit is just an extended activity of the Father, we read John 16, 13, that he first hears from the Father, and then he teaches. It's Not like just the Father in activity teaching. He will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears from the Father, he will speak. That's a person. That's a teacher, that's a witness, that's a counselor. He's not treated like a force or an influence or an activity. This is why the church wrestled for three centuries trying to understand the glorious revelation of the Trinity in the New Testament in particular. And it will make a big difference in your own life if you come to terms with, go deep with the fact that a person, the sovereign, almighty God, the Spirit, lives in you. You really need to rehearse that regularly during the day. It it, it won't just keep you from pornography, like, like he's, he's into slapping your hand on the mouse it would just blow you away. It would just cause you to be absolutely amazed that you're a walking tabernacle of God, the person of the Holy Spirit. You need to linger on that truth, (laughs) not for little, puny things like you're gonna keep me from watching pornography. He's gonna change everything. I mean, how can it not be? He's God, and He's living in you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity. H.C.G. Moore, Bishop of Durham, died in 1920, witnesses to what happened to him when he discovered the personality, personhood of the Holy Spirit. He said this, never shall I forget The gain to my conscious faith, so this is talking experience, not just, I I know this, but the gain to my conscious faith and peace, which came to my own soul from a more intelligent and conscious hold upon the living and most gracious personality of the Holy Spirit." It was a new development of insight into the love of God. It was a new contact, as it were, with the inner eternal movements of redeeming goodness and power, a new discovery in the divine resources. So he's a person, and then you add to that that he is a divine person. And the reason we know he's a divine person is because of the phrase Spirit of God, which occurs over and over. Spirit of God. What does the phrase of God mean in the phrase Spirit of God? It doesn't mean created by God, or that he is an impersonal energy flowing out from God. It means he shares God's nature. He's eternally from God. Now, here's my argument for that. Think with me carefully. This is complicated for about a minute. If the Son of God is equally eternal with the Father and different from the Father and one with the Father, which is what John 1 :1 says, let me read it. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. With and was. That's the Trinity, Half, two-thirds of it. With God, meaning distinct, was God, meaning fully God. In the beginning was the Word, so that's the Word. If that's true, if the, if the Word, that is the Son, was co-eternal with the Father, then the Holy Spirit is equally co-eternal with them both and not created because, according to Romans 8, 9 to 11, the Spirit of Christ is one and the same with the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ is co-eternal with God and is God and yet different from God. That text in Romans goes like this, You, you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. But anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. You see the interchange? Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, interchangeable in Romans 8 9. If the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ are one, and if the Son, who has always had a Spirit, is co-eternal with the Father, then that Spirit is co-eternal with the Father, and that Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and therefore He's co-eternal with the Father and is God and is not and he is different from God. So it is an awesome thing that the Holy Spirit is a person and that he is a divine person, and thus Christianity releases on the world, introduces to the world in bright lights what was only dimly foreshadowed in the Old Testament Namely, that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that the great commission is to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name, not names, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which means that if that is not to be gibberish at the baptismal recitation, We're called to teach everything that Jesus taught, which includes the personhood of the Holy Spirit and of the Son and their co-eternal nature with the Father. Otherwise, we're talking nonsense when we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we're not sent into the world to talk nonsense. We're sent to talk very, mysterious and wonderful things as we baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what we say in a nutshell is the one God standing forth in three persons eternally of the same nature, co-eternal, with each other and yet are each other, is that the Father planned our salvation, the Son came and purchased our salvation, and the Holy Spirit now is applying and extending and spreading our salvation throughout the world. We live in the third great era of Earth's history. The first era from creation to incarnation was the era of a focus on the monotheistic God, with only dim echoes of the Trinitarian nature of God. So the Father has preeminence until the incarnation. For 33 years, the Son goes on display as never before. Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity gets all the attention for those 33 years. He goes back, he pours out the Holy Spirit who is working today until Jesus comes back. We live in the era of the Spirit. So our next question is, what's his mission? What was he sent to do? And what does he promise to do in your life? as part of His mission. The answer to His mission, and this is the sentence I hope you can repeat when we're done, the ultimate mission of the Holy Spirit is given in John 16, 14. It goes like this. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will glorify me. Jesus talking. When the Holy Spirit is sent, is poured out, After my ascension, he will glorify me. Now, he does many other things. We're going to talk about a few of them. But if you try to ask how they all relate to each other, nothing is higher than Trip Lee's, you were made to make much of Jesus, and I'm saying, the Holy Spirit was sent to make much of Jesus, or the Holy Spirit was sent to help you make much of Jesus. That's why we said His ultimate mission in the world is to magnify Jesus. That's why we call him the shy member of the Trinity. He's always putting Jesus up, putting Jesus up. And if you want him to be at work in your life, put Jesus up. If you want to be at work in your small group, put Jesus up. He loves to make Jesus shine. That's why he came. He came to glorify Jesus. And that means, reveal the beauty of Jesus to people who are blind. Open the eyes of the blind, raise the dead so they can see Jesus. The world is blind, the world is dead. They don't see Jesus as supremely beautiful, supremely great, supremely powerful, supremely wise, supremely valuable, the treasure of their lives. They don't. He's boring. He just fits into some theological pocket over there or non-theological pocket, and they will remain that way without the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit opens eyes when Jesus is lifted up through mouths or books, blogs, tweets. The global admiration of the glory of Christ is the goal of God in the world and the work of the Spirit. Romans 1.5, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name of Jesus among the nations. So, Jesus magnified among the nations is the work of the Holy Spirit, and He aims to use you to do it. God has highly exalted Him, bestowed on Him a name that is above every name, so that At the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth." So when we lift him up in our words, the Holy Spirit with a big smile on his face says, that's what I want to do. I want to get into your life because you're lifting up Jesus. I want to get in there and make him look great through you. That's my job. You can't do that. You can just lift him up. You can write poems about him, write songs about him, preach sermons about him, share about him in small group, but nobody will see him as great unless I come do my work. And he, he won't do it without you. You try to, you try to fly the jet of the gospel out here with the Holy Spirit, like those blue angels, sh- sh- like this. They fly like this. Holy Spirit just loves to do this. Sh- sh-. If you land this plane, seven, I'm just going to preach the gospel and use words if I have to. I hate that statement. Woo, do I hate that statement. There's no gospel without words. None. Nobody can be saved by watching deeds. Nobody. Now, of course, 1 Peter is just full of commands to do good deeds so that people will glorify God because of chapter 2, verse 9. My people are called to open their mouth and bear witness to the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. Talk it up, do it. Nobody's getting saved by watching you take a bowl of soup to anybody. So, so you, if you land the plane of the gospel and hope that the jet of the spirit will do the saving work in Yemen, it ain't gonna happen. It'll happen with martyr witnesses It's all over the Bible that the Holy Spirit delights to magnify Christ in the mouth of believers. Last question. Two more questions. What is He committed to do for you? If you want to go, if you're contemplating, I just want to be totally available, whatever He wants me to do. What has He promised to do for me if I'm out there, utterly yielded? Well, here's seven things. Number one, He has given you life. Let's just start there. He has given you spiritual life. You need to know that's how you are alive. Romans 2, I mean, Ephesians 2.5, the Holy Spirit will make you alive. And He made you alive. John 6.63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help. John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So born, born, born from what? To life, to life. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit, and the Spirit is life. Paul said it this way, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, we are ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. So if you have any life in you, and by life I simply mean is your spirit, your heart, your soul, awake to the beauty of Christ, the value of Christ, so that you say, he's my treasure. I treasure Jesus above everything. If that's you, you're alive. And you got alive because the Holy Spirit raised you from the dead. You were blind and now you see Jesus as surpassing value. What a miracle. You should be so happy about that. You should give Him all the credit. You should wake up in the morning every day amazed that you're a Christian giving Him all the glory. Number two, the Holy Spirit gives you assurance of salvation. This is really relevant because a lot of Christians, most Christians, all Christians at some point, struggle with the assurance of their salvation. So not only does the Holy Spirit make you alive, He helps you know you're alive. Here's the key text, Romans 8, 13 to 16. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, so by the Spirit, you crucify, mortify, put to death sinful deeds that your body might otherwise perform. If you kill them before they happen by the Spirit, you will live for, utterly crucial word, all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Now keep that connection in mind because we're going to come back and talk about how the witness of the Holy Spirit works here. For all who are led by the Spirit, led what? Led what? To marry, to go to school, to be a missionary? No, led into warfare with your sin. Let me read it again, so you see that. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, because everyone who's led to do that is the Son of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. When we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, there are two ways. Now get this, this this may be the most important thing for your struggle that you hear in this message. There are two ways the Holy Spirit works by His witness to give you assurance that you're really saved. One, He leads you. And in the context, what we saw was the leadership is lead you into hatred of and battle against your sin. I hate it. I'm killing it. I'm a murderer. I hate my sin more than I hate anybody or anything. You do that? You hate your sin more than you hate the devil? Your sin's a way bigger problem than the devil is. The devil cannot put you in hell. Your sin can. Your sin is the biggest problem in the world. You hate it? You make war on it? If you do? The Holy Spirit is loudly witnessing, bearing testimony. You're mine. Because everybody led by the Holy Spirit is a son of God. And secondly, do you, like a little baby, helpless, putting on no airs, say, Abba, Father, I need you. I think that's what's implied. I think that's why Paul said Abba, like why did he say Abba instead of just Father? Everyone who says Father is experiencing the witness of the Holy Spirit because he was trying to say, no, no, no. The real witness of the Holy Spirit is the, the work in here of a child likeness. Unless you turn to come like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. He has worked a childishness in you a little desperate, helpless. I need help. I'm a nobody. I can't save myself. I've got to have a daddy. I, I can't live without help. That's the Holy Spirit talking. This is it not a computerized? Abba, Father, this is real, childlike, happy cry to the Father. So, if you're hating your sin and putting it to death, and if you are broken-hearted little child calling out to your Father, you're a Christian, and you can know it because He's working those things in you. That's number two, the assurance of salvation. Number three the Holy Spirit sanctifies you. He only gives you life, gives you assurance. He starts transforming you. Second Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 13, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through, to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. So, salvation And the pathway there, through the pathway to final salvation, heaven, is holiness. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. Holiness. And that holiness is by the Spirit. You are totally dependent on the Holy Spirit to get to heaven. Because you're totally dependent on the Holy Spirit to become holy. And nobody goes to heaven if they're not holy. And I love the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Yes, I do. We're not playing games here. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is not dwelling in you for nothing. He means for you to be holy, and He will do it. Not perfect. That's a heresy. Number four he fills you with joy and power for boldness in witness. He fills you with joy and power for boldness in witness. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So you are commanded in this room right now to be filled with the Spirit. And I'm going to close by showing you how to pursue that. But right now I'm just making, making it plain that that's what you're called to do. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing, here's, this a participle, and you've got to figure out how this participle works, right? Addressing. My suggestion is that it's, it's the overflow, it's, it's what you do if you're full of the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. Whatever ethnicity you are, you know, with cramped emotions or wonderful emotions, it doesn't matter. You're told to sing and make melody to the Lord from your heart because that's what happens when you're full of the Holy Spirit. So the, the Holy Spirit brims over. In joyful songs to the Lord. Now, I think that is beyond, above steady state, ordinary, contented Christianity. I don't know of any Christian who in history or today has walked consistently in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, as I'm explaining it right now. Nobody, not Paul, Peter, pick your favorite hero, Christian. None of them has experienced Romans, Ephesians 5.18, moment by moment all their life. Otherwise, I don't think Paul would even bother commanding it if that were normal steady-state Christianity. So I'm, I'm interpreting fullness over the Spirit is the fullness of the Spirit as special. It's special. It happens repeatedly in the book of Acts. Not one time, not like the baptism of the Spirit once or something, but repeatedly. And it comes with unusual joyful power for boldness in witness. For example, Acts 4.31, when they had prayed and the place in which they had gathered was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and were speaking the Word of God with boldness. Now that happened. That was a happening. A half an hour earlier, it wasn't the same. Jesus connected this directly with world missions in Acts 1, 7, and 8. When he was about to return to heaven. The disciples said, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And He said, it is not for you to know the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria." Earlier at the end of the Gospel of Luke, I think he described this as being clothed with power. Different pictures of this empowering, special outpouring of the Holy Spirit from on high that we we should want so badly. So, I'm I'm arguing there is a, a special fullness for power, unusual joy, boldness in witness that is beyond, different, something more than the good, ordinary, sweet, fellowship that you have with Jesus every day. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones described it like this. He said, picture God like a father walking with a little child, hand in hand, and they're walking down the road on a beautiful day, and the child is happy, content, just glad to have daddy's hand on my hand, looking all around, and suddenly the father owing to nothing but pure affection, sweeps the little child up, gives him a big hug, looks at him and says, I just love you. And the child is so glad. He said, that's the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Nothing wrong with walking like this. If you've ever been in a situation where you need extraordinary boldness, and your mind is suddenly becoming distracted and you can hardly remember a Bible verse and everything in your head is going haywire. You need help big time. And so did they in the book of Acts. And so we should plead to God for the fullness of the Holy Spirit that is for a special joy, a special power, a special anointing, a special outpouring for Yemen and for for Japan and for your city and your church, not the ordinary good, good, good steady state Christianity. I devoted most of my life, 33 years, to steady state Christianity. I'm happy with the fruit God bore at Bethlehem. But oh, I was ever calling out for some extraordinary outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we saw little seasons where there was remarkable earnestness about prayer and boldness and missions, but not as big as we all long for. Number five, the Holy Spirit gives special guidance in your mission for Christ. Special guidance. We're going to talk about this on the panel in a minute. Listen to these amazing texts. Acts twenty twenty two. 22, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Acts 19, 21, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I'm going to see Rome. I'm resolved in the Spirit, I'm resolved in the Spirit to go. Acts 16.6, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. You start to go there? No. How did that happen? I don't know. He just The Holy Spirit didn't let it happen. He guided them not to go there. Acts 13.2, while they were worshiping and fasting the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. If you count every branch of the Christian church today, every imaginable branch of the Christian church, there are about 400,000 foreign missionaries in the world. In 10 years, hundreds of you, I believe, are going to be among that number. You will be somewhere. You will be among some people group. You'll be performing some task. How will you get there? From here to there, how will that happen? Answer, the Holy Spirit will get you there. and He will. And so, when you call upon him for guidance, believe that, believe that. We'll go into more detail, maybe, on the panel. Six, two more. The Holy Spirit will give you everything you need for suffering and death. A life of obedience to Christ in the cause of world missions requires some measure of suffering. It does. It's just required. It won't happen without it. It may cost you your life. I don't doubt that there are martyrs in this room. I do not doubt it. If I had to bullet to my head here and somebody said, there will be or there won't be martyrs in this room, you get a bullet. If you get it wrong, I would say there are going to be martyrs. And then I might be one. But I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. That, that wouldn't be a, a martyr. That would be stupid. The Holy Spirit will give you everything you need. Listen to this, Luke 21, 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. My question to you is, will you be able to stand in that moment? Will you be able to endure to the end? And my answer is, yes, you will. And the reason I have confidence that you will is because of what the Holy Spirit will do for you. Right now, you do not feel that, probably. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy Of the Holy Spirit. These are brand new baby Christians and as soon as they cross the line into faith, they get persecuted and they're happy. That's not normal. That's a miracle. That's why he calls it the joy of the Holy Spirit. So I'm generalizing. I'm saying that's what he does for suffering people. His people suffer. He's called them to suffer, and he's there. He won't, he will not let you be stranded without the spiritual resources to endure the suffering. Peter put it like this. I love this text. I hope I'm getting it right. 1 Peter four fourteen: If you are insulted for the name of Christ. Now, I'm going to generalize from an experience of being insulted out to other kinds of suffering, but you see if that's legitimate. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. What does that mean? If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. It doesn't feel like a blessing. Oh, oh, yes. Why? Because the spirit of God, of glory and of God, rests on you. I, I think that means, don't you, whatever form the suffering comes in, there's a presence. There's a glory. There's a, a, a spiritual arrival so that an hour before the torture or the firing squad your heart may be beating with uncertainty whether you can maintain your faith because the holy spirit is going to give you what you need when the hour requires it and i'm i'm just asking you to believe that he will because he promises to you don't need to feel bold and strong and valiant right now. You don't. You just need to say, when it comes, that's the way I feel at 70. I don't like the prospect of dying. I like the idea of being with Jesus, but like R.C. Sproul used to say, I'm not afraid of death, I'm just afraid of dying. No old person likes what they see at the nursing home. So how do you face that? I mean, How do you deal with that? And, and the answer is, he'll, he'll be there. He'll give what you need. Number seven, finally the Holy Spirit will raise you from the dead. Romans 8, 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also. If the Spirit dwells in your mortal body, he who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also. So, life from the dead, assurance of salvation, holiness or sanctification, fullness of joy and power for witness, guidance, help in suffering and death, and finally, resurrection. The Holy Spirit will not fail you. He promises you all those things as you go with Him into His mission. This is how you stay there. This is how you get there. And the last question is, how do you experience that? If you're not a believer right now and all this, all this Holy Spirit talk is just utterly you know, mythological to you, just strange and weird, like those folks in chapter 19, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit, then I want to answer your question, well, okay, what can I do now? What, what do I, how do I get this? And if you're a believer, you really have the same question, and then this is the same answer. How do I get more of Him? And I sure hope you want more of Him after what you've seen. And here are my three answers. Number one, ask Him sincerely and earnestly to come. Get alone tonight or in a group and ask him. Luke eleven thirteen, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Can that be clearer? How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? clearly step number one in receiving as believers the more, the fullness, the whole range of fruit and grace and power and joy and guidance is to ask. I ask every day for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I I feel bad because it's so routine for me now. I have to stop and say, I'm sorry, that just came out of my mouth. I don't even know what I was saying. I was thinking about breakfast, and and just blah. I just hate. I I just hate it when glorious things become rote. And you have to pause and reel it back in, say it again from the heart, and apologize for your inattentiveness. I'd love to give a little speech right now about inattentiveness in worship and in personal devotions, but that's another sermon, some other place and time. It is possible to grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30, it's possible to quench the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, and it is possible to be filled with all the fullness of God, Ephesians 3.19. And step number one in experiencing the fullness of Ephesians 3.19, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God, is to pray. That's what Paul did. Ephesians 3.14-19 is Paul's prayer for you, for me, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. And I think if Paul prayed that for us, we should pray it for ourselves. That's number one. Number two, trust the promises of God's Word that Christ has purchased for you trust. The Holy Spirit comes to us and shows Himself powerful within us in and through faith in particular promises that Jesus bought for us when He shed the New Covenant blood. Listen to Galatians three five. Does He who supplies the Spirit to you, now if you if you want a full fresh, larger supply of the Spirit, you should be listening right now. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is clearly, not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. What does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit, being the the shy member of the Trinity, who, who delights to magnify Jesus, holds back while we put promises up there, and he can come and then move by faith in those promises with joy. So that where, where a promise is penetrating and being believed, that's like the shaft of the Holy Spirit. They're not separate, they're not like sequential. It's like the the pipe. I don't know how they. I don't know how you bore pipes down into water, <laughs> uh, but it's like a pipe of faith being bored into the soul as the promise is made, and we believe the promise. And that boring is the Holy Spirit, so that when the promise arrives, penetrates, is believed. The Spirit is active. This is the way I feel. It's the way we experience it. When you're reading your Bible or listening to a sermon and some truth just explodes in your mind with obvious beauty, that burning in your heart is the Holy Spirit. But it looks like I'm burning over the Word. Did not our hearts burn within us as He opened to us the Word? What was that burning? That was the Holy Spirit. So there's no separating the Word and the Spirit. So, ask Him to come, find some wonderful promises in the Bible, and meditate on them and believe them. And finally, number three, it follows, doesn't it, especially for ongoing experience of the Spirit for believers, that the Holy Spirit comes by the Word, and we should store the Word up in our hearts. It is the Spirit, this is John six sixty it is the Spirit who gives life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It is the Spirit who gives life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So, the Spirit gives life, and the words our life. They are inseparable. Paul said, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in Psalms. And he said, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, addressing one another in Psalms. Why do he do, do one in Ephesians and the other in Colossians? Be filled with the Spirit, singing. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, richly singing. It's Because as far as Paul's concerned, The fullness, the explosive fullness of the Word of God displaying the glories of God is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit does not do His work without the Word because He glorifies Jesus and the Word describes Jesus. He's not into giving warm, fuzzy feelings. He's into making you be amazed at Jesus. And therefore, the Word portrays the Father, portrays the Son, portrays all their works in the world. And if the Spirit is there, they are amazing to you. And if He's not, they're boring to you. That's why we call upon Him that He would come. So, the third is, we read our Bibles. So, I close with three, two ways of saying it. How do you receive the Holy Spirit the first time, or how do you receive the Holy Spirit on and on? Ask Him. Trust the promises of God bought by the blood of Jesus. Listen to Him. And lastly, another way to say it, how do you receive Him? Like if you wanted tonight to go hard after God and be filled with the Spirit, seek His fullness by asking. Be satisfied with His presence manifest in His Word and be saturated in an ongoing way with the Word of God. Father, I pray for myself and for these friends that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not merely because we love the prospect of your most precious communion and fellowship, but because we want to overflow in power when we speak to people. We want our words to have life-giving power. And we want to reach the nations in the power of the Holy Spirit. So give encouragement now to those several hundred folks who are right on the brink of a climactic yes to your leading into frontier missions. Give them great boldness and confidence that the Holy Spirit will be in them and on them and before them to make them useful. I pray this in Jesus name amen